Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. This week, we're continuing on with the Magical Month theme of August, and we're going to have a look at Demonology, which is a book about witchcraft written by a monarch. If you've never heard about it, then great, because that's what we're going to have a look at. And if you have heard about it, then hopefully you'll learn something you may not have already known. Now, sometimes it can be quite difficult to comprehend the popular appeal of a book. I mean, if you've ever tried to read Twilight, you might be like, what? How did this become so popular? And yes, we've had phenomena like Harry Potter, Fifty Shades of Grey, but none of them have, as yet, led to the mass persecution of probably innocent people, quite like demonology. Now, to give it its full title, Demonology, in form of a dialogue divided into three books by the High and Mighty Prince James, the book was first published in 1597 in Scotland, and it was published again in 1603 in England. Now, Demonology does hold the fairly dubious honour of being the only book in history written by a monarch about witchcraft, and that monarch is James VI of Scotland and I of England. So in this episode, we're going to have a look at what Demonology was, why it was written, what was its impact, and who was it for. So what was demonology? Basically, it's a manifesto for James's beliefs in witchcraft and magic, and he wrote it as a treatise that he intended would prove the existence of both of them. That would be fine, but he then also added preferred punishments for these practices. And demonology essentially comes in three sections, hence the three books in the full title. So the first deals with magic and necromancy, the second deals with witchcraft and sorcery, and the third deals with spirits and spectres. And if you actually look at Shakespeare's Macbeth, bits of the witchcraft themes actually come from the book. So the bits about animal familiars, which we looked at in last week's episode, potions, chanting, raisin storms, all that kind of jazz. Now, there's an article about demonology on the British Library website, because they hold a copy, and they point out that it's actually Shakespeare that makes Macbeth the villain, and that's both for murdering Duncan and becoming a tyrant. The witches don't really figure that much. I mean, they've got their prophecies, which Macbeth basically misunderstands. And it's possible that Shakespeare might have actually just been paying lip service to witchcraft to curry favour with King James, but he didn't actually buy into it enough to make them the true villains of the play. But Demonology wasn't the first book about witches, so we're going to go back in time just slightly to have a look at what could have been and Reginald Scott had already published a book in 1584 called A Discovery of Witchcraft. And in it, he did describe witches as being old, pale, wrinkled, deformed and miserable. So it's hardly surprising that suspicion often fell on old women. But, and this is a crucial difference, Scott's goal was debunking belief in witchcraft and magic, not persuading people that they existed. And he offered a range of psychological causes for so-called magical phenomena, and he also included non-magical reasons for things happening. In my head, I like to think he was a little bit like Scully from the X-Files. And he actually was the one who raised the idea that in this particular century, this particular period in time, it was a big thing to do charitable acts for your neighbours. And if you then turned away 
an old woman in need, so say some poor old woman who lived in your community, and you turned her away, well, one, you were actually being a bit of a wronging, but it also meant that the neighbours might want to ease their own conscience, and it would be quite easy for them to then start throwing around accusations of witchcraft to explain why they turned away this neighbour in need. And incidentally, the Catholic Church also came under fire in Scott's book for encouraging superstitious beliefs in the first place. Now, demonology stood as a complete challenge to Scott's scepticism, and James basically wanted to set himself up as a spiritual warrior, and he would fight the legions of Satan on behalf of his people. And if you've ever seen the witch hunt episode of Doctor Who, so it's the most recent series with Jodie Whittaker, and it had the incomparable Alan Cummy as King James, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But why did King James I write demonology in the first place? Well, back in 1590, James was King of Scotland, and Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne of England. And James's advisers had arranged his marriage to Anne of Denmark, she tried to set sail to reach Scotland on her new husband, but a huge storm rose up and forced her back. Desperate to prove his masculinity, James sets off to fetch her himself. And another storm blows up, and James starts to get convinced that the storm actually has unnatural origins. Now, it is also possible that it's this first trip to Denmark that starts the obsession with witches, because the Danish witch hunts actually went back to their conversion from Catholicism to Lutheranism in 1536. And basically it took this Lutheran bishop in the sort of like the 1530s. He painted Catholics as being witches and obviously was trying to you know, smear them because obviously they were trying to cement this conversion for religion. And this basically led to witch hunts around the country. Now, the Danish official trials actually began in 1559, although it wasn't until 1571 that they actually burned anyone at the stake. But this is still like a good almost 20 years before James turns up. And according to Jimmy Fife, around 2,000 witches actually stood trial in Denmark and half of them were executed. So you've got to imagine James has got all this flying around in his head and he's just been in this horrible storm, finally managed to get home. And he decides that the storms were created by witches because he felt they were unnatural. And as it happened, somebody allegedly saw this group of women dancing on the beach at North Berwick, near Edinburgh. And they were basically rounded up and people accused them of the witchcraft that raised the storm. And there was about 70 of them dragged up into all this. Now, under torture, the suspects did admit to all sorts of spells. And this included really random stuff like severed bits of body parts and then tying them to dead cats and throwing them into the sea. And eventually James actually brought the main suspect, Agnes Sampson, to Holyrood House in Edinburgh where he could question her himself. Now I don't know what he really thought of her at first but eventually when she took him to one side and apparently repeated what James had said to Anne in private on their wedding night, he became absolutely convinced that she had supernatural powers and he condemned her as a witch. Personally, she might have just been really good at cold reading and made a really good guess. But either way, it sealed her fate and she was tried and executed as a witch. And basically, because of this, he then commissioned a pamphlet which was designed to provoke a fear of witches based on what had happened at North Berwick. But then he decides to go one step further and he decides he's going to write an entire book himself. And the problem with demonology is not only did it paint witches as evil, it also promotes his incredibly misogynistic views. And in chapter 5, James actually explains that the reason why women are more likely to become witches is because they're frailer than men. And it's also this King James who sponsors the King James Bible in 1611. And this is quite an interesting one because this is the, what the 
particular translation where any references to witches are rewritten so that they're all female. And he's also the monarch who's perfectly okay with changing the phrase thou must not suffer a poisoner to live to thou must not suffer a witch to live. Very, very different message there. So why did demonology have an impact in the first place? First of all, he wrote it in the form of a play. So two characters are basically sitting debating the issues around witchcraft from a mock philosophical point of view. And Brett R. Warren actually notes the importance of their names, Philomathes and Epistemon. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but there you go. Philomathes, basically, if you break his name down to philo, which means like love of, and mathes is like learning. So he's someone who loves to learn and collect knowledge. Epistemon, on the other hand, means scientist. So he personifies the concept of epistemology. Now, because Philomathes is the sceptic and sort of questions a lot of what Epistemon says, it then makes James's conclusion seem a lot more reasonable because the entire book takes the illusion of a balanced argument, although it's basically anything but. And the choice of a dialogue also made it easier to read for people. The format's more engaging and some people even call it quite entertaining to read. So in this particular format, it lets James share basic information that people might already recognise, but also the specialist knowledge that you would expect from an expert. So basically, it was an early version of a frequently asked questions page. So if a reader had had any question about witchcraft and how people practised it, James wanted to answer it. And popular belief in all things supernatural meant that it was really easy to swallow the ideas in demonology. And the fact that the monarch wrote it made it even more attractive to readers. I mean, think about it. If the Queen suddenly wrote a book, you'd want to have a look at it. I mean, I think nowadays people are a little bit more sceptical and we might go, nah, but we'd still want to have a look at it anyway. But as a result, we'll never know how influential demonology might have been if just some random dude in the street had written it. It's also important to note that demonology actually takes pot shots at religion as well. And Warren points out the inherent supernatural nature of Catholicism, particularly the importance of religious relics like bone shards and like bits of finger and so on that you would find kept in these cathedrals. And as he says, when Catholics prayed to the saints and angels for assistance, or held ritualistic incantations to exorcise demons, King James likened this practice of necromancy. So if you look at these magical aspects of Catholicism, and then you look at the weird healing rituals and spells that people would have used because obviously modern medicine didn't exist yet. It's no surprise that people were much more used to supernatural practices in their daily life. So you can quite easily go one step further and go, aha, not only is there good magic, but there's also bad magic. And I'm going to assume that the Catholic attempt to blow up Parliament with him inside in 1605 probably did little to soften his views on religion. But this is where it then starts to go a little bit mad. Well, even more mad, I should say, because Scotland was more superstitious than England. So the witch craze was far worse north of the border and they absolutely ate up demonology. But then we get to 1603, Queen Elizabeth I dies and the throne passes to James and he becomes James I of England. And he was horrified because when he looked at the laws, English laws against witchcraft weren't nearly as strict as those in Scotland. For one thing, torture was illegal and the English used hanging rather than burning. In fact, the number of trials for witchcraft and executions had actually gone down, which could be as a result of Elizabeth I's relatively lenient views on religion. 
It's not really surprising, really, because Elizabeth saw all the madness caused by the Reformation under her father, King Henry VIII. Then she saw the, the country sort of continue as Protestant under her brother Edward, and then it went back to being Catholic under Mary, and then it went back to Protestant under her again. And apparently she actually took the view that it didn't really matter which version of Christianity you followed, as long as you kept it to yourself. So her witchcraft statutes were equally lax, and for her, only killing or hurting someone using magic carried punishment for witchcraft, and Tracy Bowman points out that it was basically the crimes that were caused by witchcraft, not the actual practice of witchcraft, that was the object of concern. So basically it's the murder or injury part of the CSU, not the means used to affect them, which I think actually most people would probably go fair enough. So then we get the Witchcraft Act in 1604, and this just basically punishes any and all practices of magic. And a first offence actually carried a mandatory death penalty of hanging, which seems a little bit over the top. But it also led to a boom of interest in witches, and I don't think it's any surprise that we then get the famous Pendle Witch Trials in 1612, because all of this is just bubbling up and simmering away, and it's just, everybody gets quite wrapped up in it, I think. And in 1613, even the nobility got caught up in the whole sordid affair. And if you want to read about this particular fascinating scandal, which actually went all the way up to James in his court, I actually recommend Tracy Bowman's Witches, James I and the English Witch Hunts. And there's a link to that on the blog post that accompanies this episode. So what are we to make of it all? Much of what James wrote did go on to become deeply influential. And his writings in demonology no doubt influenced the confessions that were gathered under torture. And I say confessions in inverted commas there. Because as these confessions were published, similarities began to appear between them. And this is less likely because people were all saying the same thing because they felt the same thing. It was more likely because the witnesses were then led by their inquisitors. And obviously you can't have leading questions in the practice of law. But if you're torturing people, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And the self-proclaimed witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins actually credited the book as his inspiration, and he used the book to create his infamous witch-finding methods. But of course, in the public imagination, the similarity of the confessions proved that they must be true, and thus the popular image of the witch was born. So she became the old woman with a familiar, thrown-out curses left, right and centre for any perceived slight. So basically, if you were just naturally a grumpy old woman, you were sort of on a bit of a hiding to nothing. But this is the thing, you still hear people use the word witch as a slur in the 21st century against women in power. I mean, I'm no big fan of Theresa May, but somebody actually referred to her as being a witch and you think, well, not really. And it's quite easy for filmmakers to repeatedly draw on the witch as a monster, usually whenever zombies and vampires are basically getting a bit boring. But the thing is, though, if the concept of the witch is portrayed by the media, largely draws on ideas made famous by demonology, then basically that witch is just as fictional as Frankenstein's creature. But magic essentially never goes away. So no matter how many incarnations the witch undergoes, she keeps coming back time and again. Nowadays, she's morphed into a figure who loves nature and is way more likely to heal than Hex, because the modern witch has very little in common with James's twisted fantasy, and it does make you wonder... Perhaps she never did, even in the 17th century. So there we have it. That was this week's post on demonology. I hope you enjoyed it. You can actually download a copy of demonology from Project Gutenberg if you want to have a look at that, so you can buy it for free. There is a link on my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com forward slash demonology, but because of the spelling, I'll put the link in the show notes. There is a link to an updated translation, which is kind of in modern day English rather than 
the 17th century English that James used for obvious reasons. So there we go. All the pictures and images and sort of you can see bits of demonology on my blog as well, thanks to images from the British Library. So thank you to them. And I'll put all the links and whatnot in that. So if you want to have a look at any of the books, there are some really, really interesting articles and so on about this online. You can find links to those as well. And it will be absolutely champion if you enjoy these episodes. If you would like to say anything else, if you feel free to drop me a request and that would be grand. Obviously, you can email me at ac at acsedgwick.com or tweet me or whatever. I'll use smoke signals if you want. Or if you'd like to become a patron on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. I'm currently running a poll to find out what exclusive bonuses people would like to receive for being a patron. So I will drop the link to that poll. It's literally a one-click job. It'll take you like a second. I'll put that in the show notes as well. But anyway, enough of me rambling. Next week, we're going to have a look at John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's court magician, essentially, and he is epic. So I will see you next week for that episode. I hope you have a lovely week. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!